You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week we caught up with Chris Moore, director of Coupet in London and previously the head bartender of the Bulford Bar at the Savoy. We talk about the importance of managers as compared to head bartenders, the small roles that drinks really play in bars, and the challenge of opening a second bar at the Savoy. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. My name is Chris Moore. I'm the director of Coupet in Bethnal Green, uh, formerly best known um, as the head bartender in the Beaufort Bar at the Savoy. Um, I've been in the industry for about 15 years, maybe a little bit more now, and, and basically done every job from the bottom to the top, um, and then finally got to open my own bar. It's great to uh, see you again, Chris. We haven't seen each other for ages, haven't we? It's a long time, not since just before you moved I know, exactly. uh, to Singapore. Yeah, actually, I had my leaving party at your bar. You did. Uh, yeah. I remember. You brought along some of your spare bottles you had left over before you moved. <laughs> I know, <laughs> All right? the stuff you didn't want. <laughs> Classic bartender. This uh, drama when you move over, you have 50 kilos of booze you try to get yeah. rid of, right? Well, I own a bar now, so I just get rid of it there. How's <laughs> <laughs> Singapore so far? Yeah, it's great. I'll tell you what I really like about it, actually, is the community. It seems to be really tight. You know, everyone knows everyone. Uh, it's very intimate. Everybody's um, very friendly. You know, couldn't ask for anything more. It's a small, uh, like, the city is relatively small in terms of, like, number of bars, but they're very close, uh, like, people are very close to each other in terms of, like, how we help each other. I, I really like the scene. Uh, I was very, it was a good change from London because mm-hmm. London is a bit more cutthroat, I think. Yeah, 100%. Like, Can you imagine having the, the WhatsApp group that you have here in London? <laughs> yeah, no. You know? Well, you kind of do. It's the LBA, but I, I'm, I can't be on that because it's just thousands of people. But, um, but you know, having having that resource and being able to reach out to 300 bartenders at once and say you know i need this ingredient we did it with fig leaves and then i just sent you a message and then you know they got it straight away yeah but um it's amazing great so you have had a very interesting career so we'd like to cover some of the highlights uh so first of all we can do the low lights as well uh, you can do the low lights too <laughs> uh where is it that you started bartending or like what was the first time you approached the this first career? time i stepped behind the bar was in an indian restaurant slash nightclub slash uh, slash bar on this random road in Coventry, which is where I'm from. And it was, um, it used to formerly be a nightclub that was called Fatty Arbuckles. And then it got redeveloped um, and, and turned into this place. I think it was called Mirage. Um, and that was the first time I, I, I got behind the bar, you know, and it was all spirits on optic and pulling pints. Um, optic is that thing that you press uh, to get, <laughs> is, is that the yeah, thing? Yeah? Yes, it is, yeah. Um, it shows the levels that we started at that you don't know what that is and I'm very familiar with it. Um, I love it actually. There's a pub called The Marksman in Hackney where if you go there, they have really nice spirits on optic. So like, um, and I saw someone recently who had Chartreuse VEP on optic. Um, it's, you know, but I quite like it. It's amazing because I mean, you know, if you want to ensure cost control, <laughs> no, 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 can't be off. I'm sure those <laughs> things are, they're, they're awesome. And, and there's literally no way to use, it. I mean, I guess you can still mess it up. Can you, I mean, I guess if you're no. too fast. No, no, because it, it, it literally cuts it off. So like it will pour the amount and that's it. It shuts off. So it's, comp- it's measured every single time. Okay. It's about like in between pours. So if you go like, say I pour 25 ml and yeah. then you're, you're doing a double, right? And you can't be bothered to wait and you pour before the bubble filled up. Oh again. yeah. 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 You but you must up. be pretty. I mean, there's human error in everything. You know, <laughs> there's always going to be someone, um, but you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's pretty foolproof. So, and uh, it seems like a pretty weird place i mean you mentioned the it's a random start i mean i remember i tell you what it is is i remember 
as a, as a teenager in Coventry, you know, we started going out reasonably early. But I always had this fascination with the people who were on the other side of the bar while you were on a night out. Like this interest, like the power they held over the night because the mm. kind of venues we used to go to in Coventry weren't nice. Like they were, they were high volume, they were packed and they were serving terrible, well, not terrible stuff. Like, you know, you could always get a couple of nice spirits, but we weren't really interested in that. But they held the power because there were so many people waiting at the bar that that could literally decide whether you have a good night or not. Because if you've got to wait half an hour for a drink, you know, while all your friends are off dancing and you're getting the round in, they can decide how quickly you get served. They've got the control over everything. And that was always a fascinating thing for me. Um, and then when I, when I first started, I was there and I wasn't there for that long. I was there for a couple of months. And then I moved to, to another place that was called Chicago Rock Cafe, which was like, a, a, imagine like a cheaper version of TGI Fridays, um, <laughs> like, a, like a budget, budget <laughs> a TGI budget Fridays. TGI Fridays. <laughs> Um, but it was super high volume, super intense. Like you worked, like it was, it was a kind of a tight team though. But yeah, I was there for, for a few months. Uh, we used to have to wear bright yellow shirts and dance on the bar. Um, you know, and that was my formative training. And that's where I started a little bit of flair bartending, which is kind of a big part of my background as well. Um, and yeah, I, I loved it there actually, you know, it was, it was like family and one of my best friends I met there to this day, you know, and then I'm godfather to his children and, um, I was best man at his wedding. Um, so it was, it was a big part of my life, you know, we laugh at it now, but like at the time it was what I wanted, like I loved mm -hmm. it, you know. You know, to be honest, I think flair bartending is, uh, uh, I mean, we went through the face, I think about five to 10 years ago where it was slightly frowned upon, but. I think most of the greatest started uh, with that, right? Yeah, 100%. I know that, I know that Argo Peroni used to flare many yeah, years ago. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, Marion used to flare. I think Alex did a bit as well. Yeah. Um, you look at Declan. From the, you know, Declan came from a flare background. It was just, it was a path that you went through because TGI Fridays and that style of bartending was a really fundamental way of learning the industry. If you were bartending in the late 90s or the early 2000s, it was just, it was the, the standard bearer because you learn how to pour, you learn how to host, you learn, you know, cocktails at their basic level. But actually, TGI Fridays has always had like martinis and old fashions and Manhattans on the menu, as well as having the kind of drinks that you think about it being associated with more, the ice cream drinks and things like that. So mm. it's, it's always had both sides to it. And it actually was a really, I remember John Gakuru, who I don't, I don't know if you remember, but mm. Used to manage lab, very well known. He's been in LA for a long time now, was Sojatiba Global Ambassador. He came from TGI Fridays and he said, I remember my first New Year's Eve in the industry. I was at TGI Fridays and the toilet got blocked and I missed New Year's Eve. I missed midnight because I was unblocking the toilet. <laughs> Seriously? You know? Yeah. I mean, but, oh, that's shit. But if you yeah. want to be, be an operator and an owner, you'd better get used to that because yeah. that's the reality, you know? But you, we do it for the love, not for, you know, not for the glamour. Although hopefully you get a bit of glamour sometimes, like, you know, getting flown to Singapore. But for me, it's a really, that stage in Coventry and, you know, the next place I moved to was a place called Prague and it was set up as like a design bar in Coventry because that was the era of the design bar of the early 2000s. Um, and that was, again, run by TGI Friday's bartenders. And they were really my formative years. You know, that was the style that I, I came up with. And the biggest thing with that style of bartending was if you can get him to speak to him or her to speak to him, your job's done. Mm -hmm. like that's, you are facilitating you know, people's nights out. Um, and I think it's, it's actually a really important learning curve for me. You know, we had to, <laughs> we had to kind of self-police the venue as well. Like, you know, through the week, there were no doormen, you know, Coventry, like you'll have a fight every now and again. You've got to be the one that deals with it. You know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty steep learning curve when you're sort of 19 years old, you know, to go through that. And, and it's really important. 
I think also to be fair, crowd management is such a, a, a unique skill that when we went through this sort of craft cocktail, I, I use the word craft very loosely, but yeah, uh, craft cocktail scene. I think it's one of those skills that we lost, you know, a little bit. I think not lost, but it's one of those thing, things that people stop putting focus on. I think there's a few few skills like that that we've we've pulled back on as an industry. And in that um, what I find now is that everyone wants to be a head bartender. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to be a manager anymore. Um, and actually, the skills that you and also every bartender I know wants to be an owner. But actually, the skills in regards to being a manager are much more relevant to being an owner than a, you know being a head bartender. You know, most of the time when you're a head bartender, you don't have a lot of involvement in financials. You don't have a lot of involvement in running the venue. You know, you're mostly focused on product. Mm-hmm. And something I talk about in my, my seminars and my talks now a lot is how actually 95% of the experience is not the drinks. Because you can walk into a venue and the experience that you have before you even get your drink can make the drinks taste bad. Because you will have decided before you even get your drink that it's not going to be good. Um, if you walk in, you know, the lights are wrong, the music's wrong, you don't get greeted properly, you don't get served efficiently, you know, you don't get given water, it can be anything, you know, um, and you will already have decided that you don't like the drink or you're not going to come back. Um, and so actually being a manager, you know, used to be the kind of the stepping stone. People used to go through the stages, they used to aspire to it. And now there's this almost roadblock where people don't want to take that step. They want to be the head bartender, but not do the next level above. And it's, it's actually a bit of an issue in the industry. I think that we've got a real shortage of, of managers now. I agree with you. I think, uh, to be fair, there's merit to like a head bartender being a head bartender. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, there is, yeah, there is. And I think it's a role that's very, very important. But I agree with you. I think uh, the management side, I think, you know, most of it is due to the fact that there is a lot of media coverage for bartenders nowadays. Yeah. So if you want to look pretty on camera, bartending is the way right like mm-hmm. no one wants to video you filling up spreadsheet right so no of course yeah, yeah. And, and and that's it but um you know the other side of it is that not every firstly not everybody is best suited to being a head bartender there are some people that are better suited to being management um and, and actually make amazing leaders um but the second thing is that if there isn't anyone doing the spreadsheets and if there isn't anyone taking on that role then actually you know the head bartender's life is going to be miserable agreed um, mm-hmm. so there has to be that balance and there has to be i think a bit more recognition uh, for that and um, a bit more of a spotlight on that aspect of the industry but yeah i think that the issue is that we have and I, i've talked about this a lot recently with my guys and with a few people in the in- industry there's a big issue with money in our industry in that you hit a, um, a ceiling in regards to what you can earn as a bartender, as front of house, guest facing operations. Um, and so what people actually do to kind of counteract that is they look for the glamour and they look for the, the recognition because mm-hmm. that can actually, if you can't earn any more money, then what you can do is you can get acknowledgement and that can lead to, to more success, you know, both both personally and, and financially. Um, and I think that's why people are staying in that role for longer now, um, whereas the traditional route was to go into management where you would traditionally financially be rewarded more. Um, but the the whole acknowledgement you know, system that we have in place now with uh, things like Tales of the Cocktail and World's 50 Best Bars uh, and the individual awards and competitions and things means that you can actually you know, find that fulfillment in, in other ways now. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. When I was at the Savoy, I, I, I remember speaking to Declan, actually. I remember saying to him that I, I, I always wanted to work behind the bar. I always wanted to be a bartender. 
And Declan said to me, I don't like that because it means that I have less control. And it was only really when I opened Coupet that that, that really came to bear fruit because I now I can't I, I don't like being behind the bar because I feel trapped. It means that I can't adjust the music, I can't change the lights, you know, I can't touch tables as I want to, I can't fluff cushions like it's um, so I just have so much less control. And the thing is that I can still watch the bar and watch the drinks coming out and I know whether they're correct or not based on just, just looking because I've just been around for so long. But it's so much less influence that I have on the guest experience if I'm just behind the bar. Because also when you look at it, actually, how, what percentage of guests sit at the bar? It's not actually Minuscule. very many. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's probably, it's maybe 10%. You know, and then everybody else I can't access if I'm behind the bar. Mm. And, um, you know, I've really, I'd say, evolved, especially in the last year and, and learned a lot more as an operator and tried to be really self-critical and improve the experience and make sure that we're looking after guests as best we can and giving them the best possible experience in, in, in every aspect of the venue. And it's required a lot of growth from me because, you know, it's not something that previously I'd looked at as much as I probably should have. And... The reason why I, I talk about things like this now is because I want other people to learn from my mistakes mm-hmm. in that actually, you know, what the venue and the experience and everything, like the, you know, we focus a lot on drinks and, you know, making great drinks is, is wonderful, but it's such a small part of the experience because actually people, you, people would rather have a cold beer in a great venue than have a good drink in a really terrible venue. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. You know, if the room and everything else isn't right, they just won't stay. They won't care about your drinks. doesn't matter how good your drinks are. So well, let's uh, go back to your beginnings. My uh, path. So we're still in Coventry at this stage. Uh, we are. What, at some point, you must have started to eyeball London pretty hard, right? No, not, not really. So the first time I, I came to London, like as an adult, I came down for the Roadhouse Flare competition. Um, oh. But I came down um, as like this wide-eyed 19-year-old bartender. <laughs> and I came, out, came down for Roadhouse. But that was just a different world to me. Like, I didn't really understand it. It was so big that I, I wouldn't even know where to start. And um, what actually happened was I was working at Coventry. I was working this place. There's a friend of mine working there too. And, and we decided that we were going to travel and see some cities in Europe together with an eye to kind of, you know, when you're 19, a lot of people talk about traveling, going off and traveling. Oh, of course. So we decided we'd do that, you know. And so we both booked a week off the holiday. And we went, of all places, we went to Ostend in Belgium, um, simply because her dad had a, a driver who was going there. And we were like, okay, well, we'll get in his van and go with him to, <laughs> to Ostend. And so we spent a couple of days in Belgium. How like, was that? Days. It was fine. I yeah. don't really remember much about it because I think we went to Ostend for one night. And then we went to um, Brussels, I think, for two nights. All I remember is they've got that naked boy everywhere that's like a fountain that's peeing. Have oh, you been there? Oh, yeah, no, I haven't it been. It sounds but, yeah. so weird when I say it, if, you, if you've got no point of reference to it, but that's just one, one of the things they're famous for. Um, naked boy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, my kind of town. And, um, and um, we came back, and um, because we'd taken a week off and we'd only been gone for three days, we were like, well, we could go somewhere else. Where do we want to go? Like, you know, where's accessible? We've only got a couple of days, so we don't want to spend too much time traveling. And ironically, we decided we were going to go to Edinburgh and we got the coach there, which is like a 10 hour coach, 10 and a half hour coach. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of motorways as well, that beautiful English yeah. motorway. <laughs> and, um, 
and it was freezing like it was winter in Edinburgh and winter in Edinburgh if you've ever been there the wind coming into the city like it just cuts you like a, like a knife it's a, but you know we, we went we started looking around the bars and it was very clear that the bars were at a much higher level than we were used to um and it was exciting. Like, it was like discovering something. We just love the city. Edinburgh's beautiful. Like, it's, it's a really beautiful kind of landscape. You've got a lot of old architecture. Um, and, you know, I, growing up in Coventry, Coventry is just like 1950s cement buildings. Okay. Um, and so for me, this was just like a, a beautiful place, you know. And um, we're out. And she, she said to me, why don't we get jobs here? And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> like terrified. Like, how are we going to do that? And she was like, yeah, let's do it. And I was like, well, okay. And so we just went into bars and we talked to bartenders and they'd recommend a place or something. And we'd go there and we'd say, do you, you know, are you hiring? Do you need anyone? And the next day... But you still had a job yeah. back in Coventry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, forget that. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you're talking about a job at this period in the industry. This was like 2004, where you'd be getting paid maybe... I think the job in Coventry, I was getting paid £4.50 an hour. Um, oh, this brutal. Eh? Yeah, but that's just how it was back uh. then, you know. So I mean, I didn't have a lot of kind of nothing to lose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so we got two interviews the next day, and I remember the, the living room in Edinburgh, and I remember that again the bar manager was called a guy called Dave, and um, I think maybe that I think he offered us the jobs on the spot. Oh, uh, like at the end of the stuff. interview, and so we offered the job in the living room, and it's, I, you know, we both accepted, and then. When we went back to Coventry, um, my friend, she was actually moving. She uh, used to live in the US and she was going to move back there in about six months. And she was like, I don't think there's any point in me moving to Edinburgh and then moving back to the US. And I was like, okay, well, I probably won't go as well then. Um, and then I remember speaking to my mum. My mum was like, I think you should go. Um, and so I literally got like, I, I went off to Edinburgh on the coach again, you know, 10 hours. And I remember I had like five pounds in my pocket and my mum had given me a check for a hundred pounds, but like checks, especially back then, they didn't clear for at least a week. So I basically had like a fiver to, to live on. I had nowhere to live, like nothing sorted. I went to Edinburgh with, with a suitcase and I used to leave it in, in the living room, in the cloakroom uh, every night. Um, and I just used to go to work every day and just hope that I found a sofa to sleep on. So I remember sleeping on people's sofas. I remember sleeping one night in a parked camper van on the street. Um, and I just just did it for a few weeks until I managed to get on my feet. Um, and that was the gamble. And I was again, I was earning £4.65 an hour, you know. So, And it's just one of those things where I think it was, I don't even think it was brave. I just think it was naive. Yeah, you know, like I just didn't understand what I was getting into and I just made it work like I just made it happen and I think sometimes you have to do those things but it, looking back on it that changed my life because the living room was just around the corner from Tonic and at the time like Tonic had some really well-known bartenders and then you had Rick's as well which had people like Jamie McDonald and Jim Wrigley um, working there and you had um, you know Stu McCluskey was working up a place called Dragonfly uh, managing that and then you know there, were, there was Jason Scott and, and Mike Aikman who later on opened Bramble and there were really really like influential important people up in Edinburgh then it was a bit like Singapore actually it reminds me of it it was a very tight community this is already 2005 or so yeah that's crazy so you know bounced around quite a bit which was kind of the way it was back then you generally went into bars and you'd work there for six months and move on you know it was just sort of accepted tried different places yeah and I think it was trying to find what best fit you as well I think that was just a thing in the industry was 
you know, it was considered because it, the pay wasn't great, you know, it was very fast and loose and it was about finding what you really enjoyed and seeing where you thought you could progress. So it was, it was a very different style now to where you're expected to have stability and to bounce around less, you know, and to, to really hold on to something, commit to it, you know, which is actually, it's a very positive thing because it shows that the industry has progressed in terms of professionalism. Um, you know, it's a big change. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also more party led back then, you know, like bartender, you know, it's the old thing about bartenders getting paid and getting laid. That was the whole aim. But also that led to very short careers, you know, because <laughs> there's only so long you can indeed, do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I was working in the living room. I have to say it absolutely was not for me and I really didn't enjoy it. Um, and after a few months, I was ready to, to leave and I was just like, well, I'm going to leave and go back to Coventry. Basically, like give up. And I went around the corner to, to Tonic and I remember the, the, well, the bar manager there was a guy called Will. Used to call him Buff, and um, I went in there and I got a drink and whatever. And and Will said to me, "How's it going?" And I said, "Well, you know, I've kind of not enjoying it. The living room. I'm, I'm going to go back home." And he said, "Well, you know, Sarah's leaving. Sarah was the other bartender there. You know, so do you want to work here?" And I was like, "Yeah." Like it was my favorite bar. I remember the moment where I decided that I wanted to be a bartender was I went into Tonic and Sam Kershaw made me an old fashioned. Okay. And I was like, I want to be able to do that. And so he, you know, offered me the job and I was like, right, I'm staying. That's it. And I think I was on five pounds 50 an hour, (laughs) you know, 85 P or whatever it is increase, you know, it's massive. Um, Sam has been around for a while as well. Long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because if he was bartending back then, he must have started in the early 2000s, right? Yeah. I mean, Um, how old is he now? He's 40, just turned 40, just had his birthday. So he was... um, I remember him telling me, you know, he started out in a hotel and uh, and and just ended up bartending kind of almost by accident because he took an interest in it. And then he was making margaritas and things. And people were like, wow, what's this? You know, you've got to remember, like, you know, back then, so Sam was 26 when we were working together. Um, it was that was still like making decent classics was was really not that common. You know, across the UK. No, well, it wasn't a thing. Like we're talking about, uh, what is it, two thousand and four, five? Yeah, it wasn't a thing. No, absolutely not. It was. I mean, it, you know, it started in the nineties, um, and D- Dick Bradsell was the hero. You know, and then back then you got a Milk and Honey was kind of on the scene. Milk and Honey was the place. Like you read about mm-hmm. Milk and Honey, like it was, it was like the myth, the legend sort of thing. It was just like completely unattainable. You couldn't imagine going there, let alone like you know. Yeah, having contact with these guys and things. And yeah. Milk and Honey had just come to London as well. But you know what was the crazy thing about Milk and Honey is that you talk to people like uh, we were talking to Jimmy and like recently mm. uh, on this podcast, and and some of the elements that he took from his experience in Milk and Honey, you're still dissecting them like decades after. Oh, it's and crazy. You think, yeah, and you think like this guy thought about it 15, 20 years ago. You yeah, know? it's insane. You know, and I only ever had one conversation with Sasha, and it was in the American bar actually. Mm-hmm. And it was just the most, it was one of the most effortlessly thoughtful conversations I've ever had because it's like he was three steps ahead of you on, on everything, you know, and it's, it's subtle touches. It's kind of things that I've really tried to integrate into my thoughts on the industry in, in terms of it's, I, t- I talk about a factor of, wow, why didn't I think of that? You know, yeah, it's like crazy. it's, it's in, it, insane. Just things like he was, he was really excited. I remember he was going to bartend for the first time in like 10 years again. And I can't remember the name of the place that he was, he was opening. It was a small place. And he was talking about how, the, you know, every table was going to have its own water tap just so that 
people, you know, if they were drinking water faster, then they could have easy access to more water, you know, so it could make sure they were hydrated and having camera a camera above every table just so that he could monitor service and monitor the way that people drank so that he could improve the service, um, you know, rather than it being like a security thing. Um, it's, it's just little tiny touches that aren't necessary. You know, you don't have to do it, but why wouldn't you? But you know what, this, this makes you think about how much he focused on the, the actual experience yeah. and how much he understood that drinks were just a part of a puzzle, yeah. you know, like of a much larger puzzle, you know. It's creating an illusion, you know. The, the big thing for me is, is the difference between bars and restaurants, which is another subject that I talk about a lot now, is that restaurants are largely about product. Like people really go there for the food. Now, you know, it's restaurants tend to be very, very, certainly the, the, what are considered to be the top restaurants in the world. They tend to be very clean, kind of neutral environments. You know, you get party restaurants as well, which are a bit more stimulating in terms of the ambience. But most of the ones that are considered the best tend to be very subtle. You know, you generally don't see the kitchen in those dining rooms. They tend to be quite plain, quite clean, quite elegant. And everything is about the plate. You know, because even in those restaurants, mostly you're drinking wine, which wine is beautiful. I love wine, but it's not visually a stimulating thing. So bars are about the way they make you feel. And that's the difference because bars are about the atmosphere. They're about soul. That's what bars are about. They're about escapism. They're about forgetting about everything that's on the other side of the front door, you know, getting away from the world and being enveloped and encased in this sort of fantasy make-believe world. That's what they are. And that's what he created. You know, all those little touches in Milk and Honey, like you have to knock on the door, like you can't just walk in. And then you get greeted by this bartender that looks like he's from another era, you know, and he guides you to a seat and you just kind of caressed through the whole experience and made to feel like you've been transported. And that's really what, what you're always trying to achieve in any venue that's, that's serving drinks. You know, the drinks are kind of an accessory to everything else. And this is where I keep talking about and coming back to how, what a small part of the experience the drinks are and how much emphasis as bartenders we put on that actually is completely disproportionate to everything else. And I think that, you know, when you work in hotels, because so much of that is taken care of for you, you know, you have a lot of staff, you have an environment that's probably very expensive, you know, you couldn't ever create that in an independent bar. Um, you might have live music and things, which not all independent bars can offer because of space and money. Um, so you can focus a lot on the product and on just talking to guests. But the amount of effort from an independent bar owner's point of view that goes into that, when you haven't got all of those resources and you haven't got 15 people thinking about those things for you, is, is just massive. And that's really the big change between being a you know, head bartender, especially in a hotel, and then moving into being an operator. So I'm very curious to hear because like, we're quite far from it, but how did you manage to land a job at the Beaufort Bar? Um, so yeah, that came about a little bit randomly actually. So I was working um, back in a place, well, back near home. So this is after after time, a few years later. And uh, the the guy that owned the bar, he went on a trip to Ardbeg, and he went there with Daniel, who you know, Daniel Bernreuter. Mm -hmm. And so Daniel was the manager of Claridge's at the time. Um, and so we used to come to London quite often from, from this place I was working. And so I got introduced to Daniel, um, met him in Claridge's 
Um, at the time, I, I had like kind of indie hair and like, you know, tatty jeans and stuff. It was a very like late 2000s sort of thing. Yeah, sort of nasty. Look. Yeah, you yeah. look back and you're like, what was I thinking? You know, it's, it's re- that's that's my period of that is looking back Hide and like, from what Facebook. was I doing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Because Facebook was just coming in then as exactly. well. So those early photos have disappeared now. But um, not entirely, to be honest. Um, and so I got introduced to Daniel and I remember seeing... Um, when the Savoy was reopening, they were looking for bartenders in the American bar. And so I thought, well, I'll drop him a message. So I dropped him a message and said, look, I'd, I'd like to apply. You know, will that, is that okay with you? Because I don't want to, you know, waste my time or if you think I'm not right, then that's it's fine. But I just thought I'd ask. And so I went in for my first interview, which was an HR interview. I then met with uh, the Beaufort Bar manager, who was Shannon. And she was was interviewing me. And then the assistant F&B director came to interview me as well. So this is like... He had six interviews in one day. And he said to me... Classic Savoy style. Exactly. And so he said to me, you know, we were talking, I was like, I don't really understand this role, you know, this this new bar that I seem to be getting interviewed for, but it's not what I applied for. And he's like, yeah, we think you'd be really good for it. Um, And I said, well, okay, like... You know, I'm, I'm not sure what I want, whether I want that or, or just a bartender's job. And I was kind of at a time in the industry where I sort of wanted to go back to bartending rather than having seniority. But I was just sort of pushed down that road a little bit. And, and I was in the end, I was quite happy about it because I thought it afforded me more options, more flexibility to, to kind of do what I wanted. And then obviously they set up an appointment for me to come back and meet general manager, who was Mr. McDonald. And I remember, so I went for the, the final interview that day, which was in Simpsons in Knight's Bar. And I went up to the bar and Daniel and Shannon had met me and, and took me up there. And um, so we were sat down upstairs and then Mr. McDonald came in. And so Shannon and Daniel both got up to leave. And then Mr. McDonald said, no, 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 Daniel, you stay with us. <laughs> I don't know why. I think maybe he was trying to fl- throw us off or something. He's you know? a weird cookie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I just think he was trying to catch us yeah. out almost. And Daniel even looked flustered and was just like, what's going on? Why? <laughs> and, uh, and so we sat down and I remember the first, I always remember the first thing he said to me. And he had my CV in his hand. And he said to me, you know, Chris, everybody tells me you're great. He said, but I look at this and I don't see it. So what do you think about that? And I was just, I just made me laugh. And I just said, well, yeah, I get that. Coming from someone who's like the general manager of the Savoy, I can imagine my CV doesn't impress you, you know? And uh, and I think that just kind of built rapport just because I was honest with him and, and it didn't kind of fluster me because, yeah, he's right. Um, and yeah, it just it just built a rapport and a relationship and then um, I ended up getting offered the job. Um, and I think it was July and the, the we were all coming in for induction on the 13th of September. Should date that always sticks in my mind. We we did induction from the 13th of September. We opened the hotel on the 10th of October, um, and and yeah, I had a month, just over a month um, before we started. They asked us to come in a week earlier, and I said, "Look, I'm I'm not really ready." Um, and so we went into induction. There were 250 people in induction. Uh, I remember in my induction group was Salim, which was ironic, you know, because Salim was the head bartender of the American bar. He worked there from 1967 until the hotel closed. And then we did induction together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Swanee as well, who's bartending the American bar, was in my group. And, you know, it's funny, like it's it's a big corporate thing. So there's a lot of role play and stuff like that. But I think because there were so many people, like it was good fun. You know, we were coming in every day at like 8.30 in the morning, spending all day together, getting to know people from different departments and, and going through that, like, is a very special time. You know, I remember the night before we opened the hotel, I think I was the only person, there was me, Shannon, Daniel, and the assistant managers, so it was Francesco and a guy called Charlie, 
who were who were the only people there from the bars because we'd basically had a disaster in terms of setup like things just weren't organized properly i was just panicked we had a we had a it was like they got people from other departments to come in and have like an experience uh, oh in, yeah in, this in the role bar. play thing it's like a test run yeah like a practice and our last one of those was a disaster absolute disaster um the drinks were way too complicated they've been the consultancy group that did them and it was an, and i remember about 10 minutes in to this two-hour session uh jill who was our, our bartender cut her finger and like it just like just collapsed it was awful and i remember i said to shannon i'm really worried like this is this is not good and she said to me okay but don't panic because if you panic then i'll panic and i thought right that's i need to fix this then <laughs> and um that's and a, so, sorry but how many dry runs have you had before actually? we had we had i think only one before that and then that was the second one we were um i think the hotel was opening i think it was a monday um and i remember that it was kind of like <laughs> told to us that when the hotel opened that they would be very much controlled in terms of the numbers of people that would be allowed inside and the monday came and about 11 o'clock in the morning the operations director came into the Beaufort bar and was like the american bar need help like kind of panicking a bit and i was like okay and i went up to the american bar and it was full and and i went to daniel and it's like you know mr mcgrath said you need help and he was like no we're fine and i was like looking at the lobby and looking at the thames foyer and looking at the restaurant thinking they're not controlling anything <laughs> nothing is controlled here and it just made me like like my heart my heart just sank i was like right okay now we're in it um and so just just worked to kind of make it as best fit and i just remember we opened the doors at 5 p.m. and just everything was a bit loose and it was kind of because it was the same for the hosts even on the door, the door were just like what do we do there's like 300 people trying to come into the bar like you know delivering all of this was was just unexpected and so we we just had to kill ourselves and work hard just to get through it and finding our identity as well because the american bar has a very clear identity like you know what you're expecting when you go there it was very very classic like basic classics focused when it reopened so it was easy to, to deliver you know um they already had a system in place while the the bar when they reopened was a nightmare because it was so old but in terms of a structure of how service works that was all organized and it was all you know very easy for the bartenders and the servers to understand what they were trying to deliver so it found its flow quite quickly whereas the Beaufort bar didn't have an identity really it was open as a champagne bar you know where the idea was they had this idea for the Beaufort bar where everyone would be sitting around drinking sipping dom perignon and literally the bar would just make the occasional gin and tonic and we opened and within the first week we were doing 350 cocktails a night from this you remember the station yeah. tiny station really hard workspace to to implement delivering that sort of volume and so we just had to adapt so fast and 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 constantly change to find our feet and and find you know the right team and and the right offer that would work in that space so it took it took a while you know and i remember speaking to argo and he said you know it took us two years to sort our back of house just to get it organized and we were the same really it took two years after three years we were we were running smoothly um and then we kind of found our identity probably about the same it took about 3 years really to to find what we wanted to do um and and how we wanted to deliver the experience as well but i think that's the main challenge with uh, having uh, a bar in a building that has the american bar in it yeah, of course i think it's a huge challenge and as you mentioned you know i think the easy i mean which i think it was a challenge as well at the time but like to reopen the american bar and make sure 
that you stay true to what the American bar is, mm -hmm. but meanwhile, you also deliver something that is relevant to today's market. I think that's a challenge within that specific ecosystem. But I think to open a bar in the same building and get it to work yeah. and get it, people to perceive it as a legitimate bar, you know, like yeah, a Yeah, you're 20 yards bar. away from the world's most famous bar. Yeah, it's very difficult. How do you make uh, it relevant? Absolutely. You know, and, and so for me, the most important thing, and I was almost over-aggressive on it, but I had to be, was we don't want any crossover um, and we have to have our own identity. We have to. It almost has to be like, a, in a nice way, it has to be like, well, fuck them. Like in a nice way. And I mean that in the nicest way because obviously we had a good relationship and everything with all the bartenders and we got them well. But I, I, you have to be like that because if you're like, oh, well, you know, yeah, we're all, we're all nice together. What they're doing is great. You know, no, you have to have a competitive edge. You have to say like, we want to beat them you know, which is almost an impossible task. It's very, very close to being an impossible task. But I'm just really stubborn. Mm -hmm. And so I just stuck to it. And, you know, I killed myself to, to, to make that bar as good as I could, I could possibly make it. And we ended up with a team which, which was actually incredible at one point. It really was like from in every role. You know, there was there was myself and Lorenzo and and Fabrizio, you know, the biggest character in every room, um, and Andrea, and then we had uh, you know we had Neil, Neil Donerkey, uh, we had Vitek who went to work at Artesian as a barback, we had uh, uh, Paula, your sister, um, on the floor. We had thank Danny, you for dropping that in of there. Of course, <laughs> we had Danny, Australian girl. We had uh, we had Will who ended up you know being assistant manager in the American bar, working as as a server. We had uh, Shannon who's who's his his partner. You know, they've been together for a while now. Um, we, we had an amazing team and, and it really was front to back. It was incredible. Yeah, Joe Schofield as well. We had Joe Schofield. I mean, know? that's a mega team. I, I, like, I forgot about Joe Schofield. Yeah, that's how big imagine. that team is. You know, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, know? once you put it down on a piece of paper, you realize that the team was actually incredible. It was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's one of the very few times in, in my career where I, I knew that I could place faith in every single person who was, who was in, you know, because we all, we all work in, in great teams, but there's some elements that you're always going to be weak in. And with that team, because that team as an entity only lasted really for six months. Um, and I remember, I think it was Danny that was leaving and it was just a life choice, you know, she wanted to go go, go and travel and, and see some things. But I remembered being a little bit devastated about it because I was like, that team's so perfect. Um, and it was, it was six months of just like, this is incredible. Um, that it was just the first one to drop off. It was like, damn, you know, how do you, I, I can't imagine replacing any of these people like it was, it was perfect from back to front. Um, and we had the pop-up menu and we had that, that kind of momentum and, you know, we'd, we'd uh, done well at Tales of the Cocktail and, and, you know, it's, it was, a, it was a really big deal because it was finally getting to where, where you really want a bar to be. Um, and just to lose, just to lose that one person was, was actually really important. How did you come up with the idea of the pop-up menu? Um, <laughs> I need to remind myself now. I used to. This is. I used to have a spiel for this question. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> we don't need the exact spiel. More of a, the gist of it. Don't, don't worry about it. You know, we we had a bit of a story because there was the Savoy produced a, pro, a pop up brochure years ago. I've got a copy, and we used to keep it in in the bar, and so we used to say that that was part of the reason. But actually, I found that after we thought about the pop up mm -hmm. menu, and it, it was literally. I I wanted to do something with illustrations from the Savoy archives for a while because the restaurant menus used to have, they used to commission illustrations for them. And so, uh, you know, I, I got to see a lot of them and I thought they were amazing. And I thought we, we kind of need to, to do something with this. 
And I always kind of pitched the Beaufort bar as being a bit more fun than the American bar, a bit more lighthearted. You mm-hmm. know, the American bar is very classic. Not that it wasn't fun, but it, 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 it is very classic in style. You know, it's, it's a big focus on elegance. And so we wanted to have a bit, be a bit more playful with what we did. And it was almost about literally bringing the menu to life. And it was, it was a ridiculous idea. Um, and I didn't even know if it was possible. That was the thing. And I remember Daniel came one day, as he used to do, and kind of marched into the bar and was like, you know, he'd asked me for kind of the direction that I wanted to take the bar in and what we were going to do, the activity. And I remember he came in this one day and he was like, right, I asked you for this like three weeks ago. You need to tell me now because this afternoon I've got a budget meeting where if we don't allocate the budget, the Beaufort Bar is doing nothing for the next year. And I was like, well, I've got this thing, but I just don't want to tell you because I've not done the research on Mm -hmm. it properly. And he said, well, if you don't tell me it now, it's not going to happen because you won't get the money for it. And I was like, okay, well, I want to do a pop-up menu. And he just went, this is a podcast, so you can't see my face. But he just sort of tilted his head (laughs) and stuck his bottom lip out and went, okay. (laughs) And I was like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right then and he must have thought that like i'd had a breakdown or something and um uh, but yeah he went and 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 pitched and, and got the money and this was not a small amount of money or a small project and you know you forget when because by that point i think it was 2013 this ended up being a 35,000 pound menu or close to 40,000 pounds by the time we finished everything um but he went and 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 got the money and then I had to find out how we were actually going to do this because I'd never done anything like it before. Um, and the research showed you that the basic structure of, of, of making anything which is, is pop-up is you need, um, you need illustrations in the first place, but they have to be drawn in a very particular way. Uh, you need a paper engineer, which was a job that I didn't know existed. <laughs> you know, I've never met a paper engineer before. Um, and then you needed someone to actually print and, and bind and assemble uh, the pop-up books, which is not a simple or a cheap process. And so I just had to start researching it and working out what the the process was going to be. And um, I remember a, f- a couple of years before that, I was trying to I was trying to think about illustrations that I'd seen that had impressed me. And the one that I could remember was there was a tube advertisement, and it was for this book. Um, and I was like, I remember the cover of that book as being very impressive. Um, it was called The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoet. Apparently, it's a very good book. I started reading it, and I'm just clearly not intelligent enough to kind of comprehend what's <laughs> okay. going on. It was, and uh, so I, I just basically looked up who created that illustration. It was a guy called Joe Wilson, who, who just turned out to be the most incredibly talented illustrator. Amazing, amazing on what he does. Um and so I spoke to him, I just got in touch with him and I remember the title of the email that I sent him was, this is really random, <laughs> but I want to create, and then it, like just underneath it was like, hi, but you know, I want to create a pop-up cocktail menu. You know, I've, I've never seen it before. I, I don't know how we're going to do it, but do you want to chat? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so he got back to me and said, yeah. And while we're talking, he said, I actually know a paper engineer. He said, uh, there's a, a woman called Helen, Helen Freel. So she, um, he said, you know, I saw her do these pieces um, and it was like little fairground pieces where she created like amazingly realistic fairgrounds all out of paper where like the rides would spin and you'd get, you know, the, the like swings and things and they were they were all made out of paper, but they worked. Um, and I think that she could be really good for this. And I was like, okay, well, let's meet let's have a chat. A shot, and so, yeah. we, so we did. And then I, we had to find a printer, and, and I found this 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 company that just seemed to fit the bill. 
and we met with them and I remember the guy, <laughs> I just remember what he said. He said, we, we do all of our pop-ups in China. He said, because the women there have the most dexterous hands in the world. And he said, oh, the, the, he said for some reason, they are the, the place that makes the best pop-up books in the world because they are the only ones that can assemble them as intricately as they need to be assembled. And I was like, this is a this is a conversation I never thought I'd be yeah, having in yeah, my life. Yeah, that sounds so weird. so random. Um, and so that's how it that's how it went down. And and then we, we you know we had to start working on the drinks, but we had to give a brief on everything we were going to do as well. So it was about how we worked in colors, you know, and how we worked in um, what the actual visuals were going to be. And we wanted a, an, a kind of image of the drink to be in every illustration. Um, and so it was about how we were going to work that. So then it was just very much a collaborative process between myself and the illustrator to, to make sure we were getting the visuals that we wanted and making sure that we were representing the drink in the best possible way. So I might send over ideas for the illustration and then he'd be like, no, that will work, that won't work. Um, and so it was about variance because we really wanted to create a different visual for every drink we wanted to create kind of the feeling of the drink before you got it mm -hmm. um and it was it's a real talking point you know it's big for us the pr we got off the back of that was was enormous you know we were in the wall street journal and things like that like it really it was global reaching for us and it, like guests used to love it like it was it was so big for them because it's such an evocative thing because most people haven't seen a pop-up book since they were a kid you know so to get to walk into a bar and to get given one is kind of like, wow, like this is, you know, this yeah, is fun. Yeah, it's a surreal thing. Eh? Yeah. It's unbelievable that no one's ever done it before, right? Well, apparently there was kind of a, a very, very different sort of scale. Uh, someone had done something uh, Along those based lines. kind of on pop-ups oh. in Sydney. Um, and I'd never seen it. Like I tried to research pop-up menus or pop-up and I couldn't find anything at all. Apart from there was this like theme restaurant in Japan or something that had done like a restaurant menu where they had one pop-up in it or something. And I couldn't find anything else. But then after we did it, I got told that there was this bar that did something with like a pop-up. It was almost like a pop-up you had to assemble yourself or something. Okay. In, it's a very different kind of project. Yeah. So do you reckon the... The release of the pop-up menu was the pinnacle of your uh, achievements in uh, Beaufort Bar? To be honest with you, I mean, speaking frankly, and it, it, it's weird speaking to someone from the American bar, formerly of the American bar mm -hmm. about this, but my pinnacle for me was winning Best Hotel Bar when we were nominated in the same category as the American bar. Because that for me was like acknowledgement of the fact that we'd reached the, the same level, you know, and to be acknowledged by the industry as that was was massive for me because, you know, I remember when, the, I remember saying to Daniel when the American Bar won that award in 2011, I remember saying, I want us to do that. And that was my, my mission, mm -hmm. essentially. That was my, my reason for everything we did in the, in the Beaufort Bar was, was we have to get to that, that level. We have to be acknowledged as, as being at that level. Um, and so that was, that for me was the, the culmination of five years of work, essentially. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, legacy. Yeah. Uh, so you were very successful with your legacy campaign. Mm -hmm. Would you like to talk to us a little bit about how much went into it? Yeah, I mean, that was that was a massive part of my career as well. And that was really part of me trying to get the bar on a, on a bigger stage. It was never really about me, to be honest with you. It was all about the bar um, because I just had to find a way of getting the word out. You know, and I, I'd been through a period where actually in the, the late 2000s, I was doing competitions and I did quite well. 
and I decided I didn't want to do competitions anymore. But then I was, you know, it was like, well, how are we going to get the bar to the level it needs to be? And, and realistically, that was a, a, a route to getting the bar more recognized. It's still now, I was, I was speaking to, to Connor, one of my bartenders about it recently and saying how, like, if, if you want to network and if you want to meet people and you want people to know who you are, then competitions is a way to do that. You can, you can build your personal network and it means people will come and come to the bar to see you. Um, and so legacy for me was, was that, and I don't, just don't think I knew what I was getting myself into at that point, but, uh, you know, again, a bit naive, but apparently when I do things that are naive, it turns out quite well mm. sometimes. So, um, you know, Edinburgh and then the pop-up menu and, and legacy, um, and, and the thing for me through that year that really drove me was, can you imagine doing all of this and then not winning, you know, like that would just be devastating, like crushing, and so I pushed myself hard, you know, and, and like I've said to you before, it was it was like a second job um, and, and you just had to make sure you kept pushing like every day, constantly thinking about it, obsessing, but, you know, trying to grow the bar at the same time. So it was a huge workload. Savoy were very supportive of me looking back on it. Very, very supportive. You know, they gave me time off um, that didn't come out of my holiday when I was going through the competition. Um, you know, the events that they supported me and things like Taste of London, which gained, you know, a huge amount of traction. Um, it was, it was, you know, it was a big task. But, you know, luckily we had the, the resources and the understanding that we could go and do something like that. Because, you know, it was almost Daniel's mission as well was to promote the bar on, on the same level, you know, to get that acknowledgement of having two bars at that level in a hotel is almost unheard of. And it was, you look back on it, I just, I don't think we appreciated how, how big it was. I'd been in the industry for quite a while, but also boxing actually, you know, I used to box, taught me a lot of mental resilience because it would have been easy to give up a couple of years in when you saw how tough it was. And, you know, back when we started, because it was a new hotel and all the systems weren't in place and you get so many, there's so many departments that you depend upon. Um, you know, there were things like when we opened, you used to have to requisition straws. But then the thing is, whenever you, as you know, get try and purchase anything in a hotel, it has to get signed off by... 50 know, million people, yeah, I remember. And so if someone goes on holiday for a week or two weeks, then it just sits there and you don't get it. Yeah, so We can't talk about straws anymore no, because no. it's not sustainable. <laughs> and back then, straws were okay. And, um, you know, that's one small battle. But when you have a hundred of those, it really builds up. And in, the, in those early days, it, everything was like that, you know, even like cleaning spray, you know, we used to have to fight for it. And like, I remember the, <laughs> where, the, where the back of house used to store it, you could actually kind of reach into the cage and open the box and get them out without having to requisition it. And so we used to go and do that. But it was, I remember Alex Cretaner telling me at um, Artesium once, it, you just did what you had to do in hotels in those days. And, and he was telling me how they, um, they were running out of glasses. And so <laughs> he got pulled into the office because they found a footprint on top of the bar in the other bar in the hotel. And they looked on the cameras and it turned out that Alex had literally ran into the bar, jumped over the bar and put his foot on it, taken a load of glasses and ran back and left. out. <laughs> and they were like, you can't do that to another department. And he said, but I'm just trying to meet our guests' expectations. You know, like are you trying to just throw it. Like, yeah. like you used to be in a desperate state and going into the kitchen and trying to steal glasses from the restaurant because you had nothing to put a drink in. Yeah, you know? that's and crazy. It's you look back on it now and like back then it was just what we did. But God, it was like mentally it's, you know, it's, it's challenging. But like you mentioned resilience. And I think one of the big wake up calls that we had in American Barrett is we had the we, we had this barbeck, right? His name is Nerius. You know Nerius very oh, well. Nerius, yeah. yeah. And... This guy, basically, like, he was supposed to start at 9 o'clock in the morning. 
and he was coming in at 5 a.m. No, so he could, yeah. yeah, could do all, <laughs> get all the prep done. And yeah. at the moment that you start thinking, I need to manage my barbecue in a way that does, he doesn't come in too early because otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's surreal. Like, that's the best problem to have. I know, right? We have a guy now, he's called Andre, and he's, he's revolutionized what we do, but he's brilliant. So he was working at a place called the Edge Baston in Birmingham, which is, is a high-level bar. Um, and he was also working as a chef as a Michelin-star restaurant, but full-time in both. And he now, he'll, he'll stay behind, you know, after we've finished and we've cleaned and everything to do prep. And then he'll come in three hours before everyone else in the day, you know, the next day. But the thing is, like, there's no drop in his performance front of house at it's all. It's unbelievable, and yeah. It's just that mental focus. Like, I, the thing is, like, <laughs> maybe I'm just getting old. Like, I can't do it anymore. No, no. It's tough. But it's that hunger. And again, like, you come back to boxers and... The, the big talk is about when people's hunger is gone. You know, Floyd Mayweather, like my favorite quote from him is, it's really hard to wake up motivated when you wake up in silk pajamas in a mansion. Like, how do you keep on, you know, that drive and that determination? Because you can do it for a while and then you think, then it's just when you've Why am I doing got this? what you wanted. Yeah, it's when you've got what you wanted. It's like, well, do I do this forever? You know, or, or do you take a step back? And it's, it's about managing your time then and, and balance and actually your energy is probably best put into other things. So, you know, I, I've stepped out of service a bit with Coupac now because you get to a point where you can either work in a bar or run a bar. You can't really do both to the best of your ability. So for me now, it's more important to drive PR and to, to get the events that we do in the bar right. And, you know, we've introduced live music and we're trying to amp up the food offer. And, you know, we're, um, we do development Sundays now and I, I want to do more with Calvados in the bar. So, but actually activating all of that is, is more important than me, you know, being in service all the time. Like mm. I still want to be present and I want to be there, but I, I, I can't do both really well. Um, and it's made a big difference, actually. You know, our revenues <clears throat> revenues jumped in the last couple of months. And I really strongly believe this because I've taken a step back. And, and actually, the team get more freedom. They get to express themselves more. They don't have me breathing down their neck all the time, you know. And, and it's about passing that on and giving them the responsibility to take ownership, you know, in the same way that other people did for us, like in the Savoy. Like, looking back on it, actually, the freedom I had in the Beaufort bar was was ridiculous. Surreal. Uh, the freedom I had as a bartender in the American bar was surreal. Mm -hmm. I never had anyone coming to me checking recipes or yeah. quizzing me or checklisting me or anything like that. Exactly. It was surreal, yeah. And, and, you know, you look back on it and you think, wow, but now it's my turn and I probably mm. wasn't as good as, it, as I should have been uh, before. Well, I'm not, not, it's not even probably. I wasn't as good at it as I should have been before. But now I'm trying to be better at it because these people are talented and they deserve my trust. You know, they've earned it and, and they're killing it. They're, like, they're actually killing it. Um, and so for me to not be on them all the time like that is really important. Why did you decide that you were ready to leave the Beaufort Bar? Um, it came to a head, and I'll, I'll talk about it honestly, because it's not a slight on anyone. But it came to a point where we did have a lot of success. And so you become more in demand and you start doing more and more and more. Um, and it really came to a head for me when... I'd been traveling a lot. So I'd been, been lucky enough to be asked to do this, this work with Bacardi, with Legacy, where um, I basically we went to pretty much every capital city in Europe to, to deliver a seminar on how to be successful in Legacy. And I was also doing other travel as well. And I was working full time in the bar. Um, and I did that for about six months. And I realized that I'd used all my holiday 
for for the year in just a few months because it was just really important though to capitalize on the success that we were getting with with the Beaufort bar and to really drive it and make sure we were out there in the industry talking to people so more and more people were getting to know us and getting to see what we did and to hear our philosophy on things and so at, at one point I went to management and I said look I've used all my holiday for the year I said can I take some unpaid holiday so that I can keep on traveling to promote the bar and they said no um, and it had got to a point where I think it was in Switzerland and I was starting to feel really physically bad and in Switzerland I was in I was about half an hour into a presentation and my nose just started bleeding and I was like this isn't good and that combined with them saying no to me taking unpaid holiday so that I could go and promote the bar that was kind of my final straw because I was like, if I'm going to push myself this hard to, to make this bar as successful as it can possibly be, and I'm saying, I don't want you to pay me. I just need some days off when, you know, everyone else is here. So I don't want to put the bar in, you know, in difficulties. I'm not saying, oh, I want extra holiday. I'm just saying I want to work for the bar, just not in the bar for a few days. Can you facilitate that? And it just being a flat no, not even a conversation. I was like, if if they don't care as much as I do, you have to question that at some mm. point, you know. And, you know, you can kind of understand why at some point. But for me at that moment, I was like, I was putting so much in. It did not make sense to you. It didn't make sense. That was it. But yeah, being completely honest about it, because I, I you know, I, I feel like there's not enough honesty in these sort of issues in the industry. People kind of sugarcoat a lot of things when they leave places or when places close down or, or you know, when things don't work out. Um after five years it was like well if I've put that much in and I'm still putting it in and it doesn't mean as much to me as it does to someone else maybe it's time to time to finish I see it uh, it's it's a tough tough decision right I think of course and and you know the other thing is everything you do in someone like the Savoy takes two years so if you start a new project so like I said before the pop-up menu was two years mm -hmm. legacy was two years like everything you do is two you're in two year mm -hmm. cycles all the time so if I'd have started a new project it would have been two years for it to come before it could actually deliver it yeah exactly and so then you were stuck in a cycle for another two years and it was do I want to stay for two I've been here for more, well five years already do I want to commit to seven you know and then before you know it it's two years two years two years two years and you're a long way down the road um so i i felt like at that moment it was the time to to exit were you immediately looking at opening your own bar or did you think i need some time that was the focus it was about but it was about how i would do it because again it's a naive thing like i, I left and i had no i i had people who said to me, oh, yeah, you know, if you wanted to open your own bar, then you know, this and this and this. And what you very quickly learn is that until someone's committed to it, like, it means nothing. Nothing, yeah. You're, you're talking to people who are drinking in a bar. So it's... <laughs> yeah, you know, never trust people drinking in a bar. Realistically. So, so I went away and it was like, well, you know, um, how am I going to do this? What do I want the bar to be? And I had this nucleus of an idea, but nothing fully formed. And so, you know, I, I went on trips to France, I thought I had quite a bit of money in the bank that drained fast once I wasn't working, you know, <laughs> so I started working part-time a bit and it was also good to keep my hand in with service. Um, and yeah, just, just figured it out essentially. And what ended up happening actually was um, the money for Coupette, I put some money in, but the money for Coupette came from people who I'd had an existing relationship with in the industry. 
just as it ended up happening and uh um, it's quite an amazing thing and, and we've now actually we had a new investor who came in and took all of those people out of the business at the start of the year um just because he's the kind of investor who can who can take you to another level um and that's really what you need these days in the industry you know it's, it's hard to make money in the bar industry as an owner um, unless you have 10 sites you know it's yeah. you, you know it's, it's tough because you, you have to reinvest so much money back into the business all the time you know it's ongoing with with maintenance and with trying to improve your offer and you know menu changes and things there's brand money that helps but it's not everything you know and so if you really the only point at which you can actually kind of really make money is when you cash out you can probably you can earn enough money to live on but you know it's not like in other industries where if you're super successful you can easily make millions you know the bar industry doesn't really have that um so having someone on board who can who can accelerate things and and really you know drive things to another level is really important but do you think there is a huge disconnect in between what you think is the best bar and what actually is the most profitable bar 100% because I, i think a lot of people go into thinking going to opening a bar thinking okay I'm going to open the best bar I can possibly do, like with the best drinks, the best service, best glassware and everything. And then you realize that that specific thing, A, is not scalable, B, does not make money. Yeah. You know, did you have but some of that? I, I always wanted a brand. That was the most important thing for me, was to create something that could be transferable and scalable. That was really important. So something that had an identity and was, was unique. Um, was very important to me um in terms of the the product that we offered it, i i always wanted great drinks always wanted amazing drinks but i also wanted people who come for a beer to be able to get something you know great as well so we, we we've never offered draft beer i'm probably going to change that soon in cooper actually because i really want to make like amazing pecan beers and things like that and a bit more brasserie style i think it'd be fun um but you know so when we opened we had five beers you know and and we had uh you know four wines four whites four reds by the glass rosé by the glass three champagnes by the glass we wanted to offer choice and so it was really important to me that we were accessible i talk a lot about so our inspiration at coupette is we're inspired by france but proudly local um because we always wanted to create a regular audience you know people a, a, the kind of venue and space that people felt comfortable coming back to three or four days a week and something i talk about in my seminars now is about how when you get those regulars it feels like a night off when you get those regulars sitting in front of you it feels like you're not at work because you know them you know their story you know the football team they support you know their family you know you know where they live you know everything about them like they they're like a um like a temporary friend because you never hang out outside of work but you know when they're sat in front of you you, you know, know who they are and, yeah. and um from both a, a a business sense and a personal sense it's the most important thing is that return business is what really will make your business successful if people come back again and again and again that's what you want to create and it's something i talk about now is with football teams is they're almost the best business possible because if you support a football team you can't just decide one day that they've lost a match and you're going to support someone else like in terms of business it's the most loyal customer you can possibly get because these people will die for their teams it's amazing you know as bars like can you imagine that if it's like no, i'm not going to any other bar ever again i'm only ever going to this one and that's there's a little bit of that that we want to kind of capture and create is like a loyalty like people buy into what you do and the way people talk about that in like black pearl in in australia 
and like I see it in like Le Leon in in Hamburg and it exists in like it existed at Tonic you know but people have like their local pub as well you know that they really like they really feel like they're a part like it's their pub you know it's an amazing thing and that's it's an element of that that we wanted to capture with Coupette so that people really felt comfortable and no matter what they were getting in terms of product that it was going to be great and how did you go about opening it so well, you mentioned the fact that you managed to secure some investors how difficult was it to find a site uh, because it's one of the biggest challenges that we're in London and uh, were you happy with the site you ever considered moving in um, so in London at that time it was very competitive everyone was paying premiums so key money um, and so it was more with the location it was more about what you could get rather than choosing the perfect mm-hmm. site um, so it was about getting a site that could work rather than getting your dream site uh-huh. um, so with Bethnal Green what I felt was that there was very much a local element to that area and that it had quite a strong bar offer already in place um, again in hindsight I was a little bit naive with how developed the area was in terms of the bar offering because what you actually don't realize until you get into there is that those bars have had to work really hard to build up their clientele um, and the second thing is that you know about well about a year in people started saying to me you know the first two years was really hard and then we found our feet like I speak to Andy who's one <laughs> you're one of, year in yeah. thinking damn <laughs> <another> year. Um, <laughs> speaking to Andy from Sun Tavern I was speaking to him a couple of weeks ago and he was like no man it took us three years you know it's never anything uh, Sun Tavern is really like busy now like, busy bar and and you know really works but yeah, it took him three years to, to, to get to that point where it was like, right, now the, now it's a proper business, you know, uh-huh. now, we're, now we're good because they have Discount Suit Company as well, which would just hit the ground running when they opened, you know, it's a tiny little bar, but always been very successful. So you hear it in a lot of people who operate more than one bar is that, you know, maybe you're losing money on one site, but you're making money on the other. So it kind of balances out. Um, and I don't know if that's what they had, but I'd imagine there was an element of that for them. But for us now, really, Coupette is now really finding its feet. So we had a, a few big issues with Coupette when we opened. We, we underestimated, because Coupette's a five-floor building, we underestimated um, the issues that were existing in the flats that were above Coupette, um, which ended up costing us a lot of money and creating a lot of issues. Um, we, at the start of this year, managed to renegotiate our lease with the landlord, so we got rid of the flats. So they took those back. And in return, we halved our rent, which was just an enormous pressure off off us. Because apart from the financial pressure as well, like we don't want to be landlords. Like it's hard enough to run a bar, never mind to try and look after tenants and, you know, worry about renting out things and whatever and maintaining the flats that someone else is living in. So that's a huge relief, huge pressure off. Uh, we also, when we opened Coupette, we had a fully fledged kitchen and we had three chefs, which then again put so much pressure financially on the business. Um, and so we ended up with this very expensive, like high-end kitchen, which then we just weren't using, but we were still paying for because everything was on finance. Um, and again, like that's all paid off now at the start of the year. So that removed thousands and thousands in costs um, at the start of this year. Um, but the pressure it put on there, and you know, naively we thought that we were going to be able to have like a lunch offer in Bethnal Green, and we thought we were going to be able to um, push out quite a lot of food. But because we're famous, like people know me and they know Coupette for cocktails, that's what they know us for. Um, and one of the things that I learned was that guests really like to be able to put you in a box. You know, for guests, you have to make it as simple as possible. So, what are you? And for now, we're a bar, we're a cocktail bar. 
back then we were trying to be everything you know we were trying to do brunch and we were trying to do coffee and we were trying to do cocktails and we were trying to do dinner and we were trying to and so people like well it confuses them you know they need to be able to put a, a tag on you so it's like well do i go there for dinner or do i go there for drinks you know, do I go there, you know, before I go to another bar or do I go there after or do I go there in the middle? But, or but, what? Yeah, but also because the resources that you have are limited, like mm-hmm. in terms of creativity, product, stuff. Yeah. You know, either hire bartenders or you hire chefs. Yeah. Yeah. You can hire like you can hire both. but It's going to cost you a lot of money and, and you need and to it be did. full. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And it was, you know, the thing is actually Coupet was very, very busy, you know, and but the problem was that the the pressure that the the cost of the chefs was putting on the business was enormous you know we had three chefs and they the bar was was really busy but people were having the food as an accessory to the drinks and so they just weren't justifying the money like nowhere near it you know the wage cost of the kitchen i think the the we, after the first 3 months was about 105% um which was just killing killing everything um, and so we, we had a conversation about what we're going to, and again, I'm going to speak very honestly about it. You know, we spoke with the investors, um, as a group and we said that we can't do this anymore. And I said, what we should do is we should lose two chefs and we should just do a simple food offer from the kitchen that we can then, you know, just maintain. We just do. So like at that point we were doing croque messieurs and the croque messieurs were the biggest selling item on the menu because they're, they're easy, they're simple, they're quick, you know, and they're bar food. Um, and I said that we should just do that you know and the investor that came from a restaurant background said well no because if you're not doing it to the right standard you'll ruin the brand and we were like well okay and he'd put the most money in so it was like we have to listen to him but that i think was probably one of our biggest mistakes actually because the way people are drinking now they don't want to go somewhere where you just drink i don't believe i think they want to be basically what food does is it keeps them there longer yeah 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 but yeah, so we got rid of the chefs entirely. And then it was, you know, the other extreme, which was people were then coming and were like, well, you know, you've only got cheese and charcuterie. You know, we wanted to have a sandwich while we while we have our drink. And so it's been a really tough balancing act over, over the two years. I feel like we've got it right now. We're, we're elevating the food offer. We'll be elevating that in the next few weeks, um, which again, Andre, who's my, my little miracle worker who, who works too many hours and works too hard, but it's amazing. Um, he's, he's working on that because of his food background and we're, we've talked about what we're going to put in place. Um, and I, I feel like it's, it's really finding his feet. We've put in live music and that's really grown things. And just in general, what you start to learn is that the, the bar needs to have a soul and identity. And speaking to Jacob Bryars about it, and he came in a few weeks ago and he said, you know, the place just looks so much better now. You know, it looks complete, like it's got more atmosphere, feels great. Um, and he was talking about how Dale DeGroff talks about how if you're going to have a bar, it's like for it to kind of gain its identity and soul it takes years because basically what you end up doing with the bar is you end up filling it with crap and that crap gives it like that stuff on the walls and like the old rubbish that you put in the corner or whatever that's what gives it more and more identity it gives it layers over the years so like one of my favorite bars in the world is McSorley's in New York have you been there yeah I've been there love it like it's you know light beer or dark beer that's it that's all you can drink but the place is like it feels like history Uh and it's just because for years they've been putting shit everywhere you know and now it's full you know there's no more room um and that's almost like in a nice way is what we've been doing with coupette is just filling out the space and fleshing it out and giving it character and and identity and it's it's really important how did you feel when you brought uh, that plate home uh, from uh, tales of the cocktails with coupette you know, 
you know when people talk about how you spend so long building up to something and then you get it and it's almost like well what now it was exactly that seriously exactly that i find it very tough and it's a flaw in my character i find it very tough to be satisfied with anything like for me coming back from tales of the cocktail there was like well we didn't win best bar in the world like that's what i'm like that's the mentality i have um i'm never happy like i always want more i always want the next thing and it's it's the same now it's no different like i try to be more content now and to be honest with you like the awards matter less to me now you know what i really want is 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 to be successful in other ways you know i want to really I almost live through the staff these days, like seeing their success and seeing how much they're taking responsibility now and how much more autonomous they are and how much less they need me is what I'm really proud of now. Um, but I still like, I'd still love to win that, you know, I'd still love to win best bar in the world. So why not? Like when I remember saying um, to to the staff, when we, when we with the Beaufort bar, when we got, I think it was number 27. And the last time we did world's 50 best bars list, I was like, that means there's 26 people who are best, better than us. And I was like, you know, when did you, when did you do anything to finish 27th? Like I don't, you know, yeah, no, true. it's very true. <laughs> and it's, it's that mentality, which is, I can be very intense with those things. And I can be, I think one of my biggest attributes, but also my biggest downfalls is that I'm very, very self-critical. So like, I will not put a drink on a menu until I am like happy. And it drives the guys crazy because we end up going to these ridiculous lengths to get ingredients and drinks right that we don't really have to, but I just can't look at the drink. Otherwise it would piss me off in service. I look at this drink and I'll be like, that could be better. You know, and so I'll keep on criticizing myself when I'm making drinks or when I'm giving service. And I'll even go home at night and I'll be beating myself up because I could have done one thing better for a table, you know. And so when you start really looking at that and analyzing yourself and thinking that you could be better, when you finish 27th at something, you know, you're like, that's not good. Um, yeah. And it's it's hard because, you know, a lot of people would kill them. Like a lot of bartenders would kill just to be in 50 best bars list or just to win a plate at Tails. Um, and I'm very grateful for it. And I really appreciate the fact that I've been able to go up on those stages and, and receive those awards. Like it means a lot to me. But it actually now means a lot more to me to do things like I've done here, to be able to go and talk to people about what I do. That's the biggest privilege for me. That's what I, I really enjoy the most as a reward from this industry is that I get to, to to go to people and say this is why the career that you've chosen is worthwhile mm -hmm. that's the thing that I believe more than anything because at some point in your career you know we're a very young industry generally a lot of people leave the industry when they get to a certain age because they don't have an answer as to why they're doing what they're doing and for me years ago I asked myself that question and a lot of people don't but the thing for me is I really believe that as long as you're enriching people's lives, as long as you're bettering people's lives, it doesn't matter what you do. So that thing that people are looking for, that escapism, that, that getaway from their life, that moment of happiness that you can give to them, that's why I'm in this industry, is that moment where you just make them, you, you make them smile, you, know, you make them light up. When people walk back in the bar and they feel like they're coming home, that's really my mission statement now for what I do. That's very cool. I think uh, we have talked quite a while, <laughs> and uh, I think, a few more hours. Yeah, if you no, want. <laughs> I think it's a good thought to wrap this uh, conversation. Sure. I have a last question I ask to everyone: If you could choose your very last drink, what would that be? Um, 
you know, there's a drink and Argo makes fun of me for it because there's a drink that I've been drinking. So back in, back in like the, the 2000s, Argo used to work at a place called Montgomery Place. Uh-huh. And I used to go down to London like most Sundays just to go, go to, to that Montgomery. bar. There was a drink on the menu they had called a Tricolore. Okay. Um, and it was, it was gin, uh, fino sherry, um, limoncello, lemon juice, and vanilla sugar. I think there might have been one more thing in there. Um, but he still makes it for me when I go to the Connaught. And so that would probably have to be the, the, the last drink that I would have. That's really, a cool drink, huh? Yeah, it's nice, you know. And it's, the thing is, I've been drinking that drink for probably 12 years now. And I can't get it from anyone else or anywhere else. But, like, you know, it's funny that the Connaught's here now in Singapore at the same time I'm here. Because the Connaught's always, like, it's my favorite bar in the world, like, in terms of a cocktail bar. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I've been following, not in like a sycophantic way or like a worshipping way, but I've been following Argo for, for years now. And, you know, that drink's very sentimental to me. That's awesome. I must have that next time I go to the corner then. Yeah, if they've still got the vanilla sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Chris. It was awesome to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Chris. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram, and you can follow our accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself, and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.